Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Today, today we continue our 2021 WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it has shaped and still guides our lives and our nation today. This time, we're digging into the Constitution as it relates to privacy. And I've got some experts ready to join me. There is, of course, a very wide expectation among Americans that the government cannot intrude into our private lives. But the fact is that the word privacy never actually appears in the U.S. Constitution. So where, then, does that expectation come from? And how is it enforced in our courts and other spaces where the law plays out in our lives? Also, how does equality fit into that notion? As we examine various provisions of the Constitution this summer, that idea of whether or not there is fairness in the distribution of these rights is key to the conversations that we've been having here on Detroit Today. So when it comes to privacy, is that right respected equally for all Americans? And how have civil rights and other kinds of issues having to do with equality, how are they fitting into these protections around the idea that we have an expectation of privacy in the United States. In this age of big tech, big data, and social media, I think this conversation has perhaps never been more urgent than it is now. So let's get to it. Joining me to dig into these issues relating to the constitutionality of privacy, where we've been and where we're headed, are two really, really great experts. Uh, Anita Allen is the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Law's Henry R. Silverman Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy. She is an internationally renowned uh, expert on philosophical dimensions of privacy and data protection law, ethics, bioethics, legal philosophy, women's rights, and diversity in higher education. Uh, Professor Allen, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. And also with us is Florian Schaub. He is an assistant professor of information at the University of Michigan School of Information. His research focuses on empowering users to effectively manage their privacy in complex socio-technological systems. Uh, professor Schaub, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Anita, I'm going to start with you. Some people, of course, believe that since the word privacy isn't in the U.S. Constitution, that there is really no constitutional right to privacy. Let's start right there. Why is that the wrong way to be thinking about these things? Well, it's definitely uh, not helpful to say because the word privacy doesn't appear in the Constitution There's no privacy right, for example, because although the word is not there, the concept and the protections are there. The founders really valued uh, privacy in the sense of private property. They also viewed a separation between the government and the citizen as key to democracy and freedom. And that set of values is very much present on the surface of the Constitution. So, for example, the First Amendment's protections of free religion and free association 
imply the concept of privacy in the sense that the government cannot demand that you worship a certain way or that you associate with certain people. The Fourth Amendment uh, pertains to rights to have private papers and a private home and a private business where the government can intrude upon, uh, upon your physical privacy and your informational privacy. Going back a second, the Third Amendment, which is an unusual amendment, mm-hmm. not very well known, has to do with quartering soldiers in wartime. You can't put a put soldiers in 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 uh, someone's someone's house without a uh, constitutional justification, special justification. And then the Fifth Amendment uh, uh, amendment, which protects us from compulsory self-incrimination is all about the privacy of our thoughts and our mind. And then finally, the Ninth Amendment of the Bill of Rights is all about uh, there being a set of reserved rights, not enumerated, but unenumerated rights, which are are safe and protected from government interference. So that, that Bill of Rights clearly embodies the concept of privacy, even though the word isn't there. And if you look at the Constitution, the original Constitution, its structure and its history, especially in relationship to things like the Federalist Papers and the English common law that informed our constitutional values, constitutional document. It's very, very clear to me that privacy is a deep and fundamental and persisting value in American constitutional law. And of course, I have always thought that the controversy over privacy and the Constitution and whether privacy is protected and how much privacy, I guess, is protected has has kind of tracked along the progression of, I guess, the expansion of the idea of whose rights are protected by the Constitution and in what way. So, so for, for example, uh, uh, once the Supreme Court starts to recognize, for instance, uh, a woman's right to privacy around reproductive uh, issues, first with with birth control and later uh, with with abortion, uh, that becomes uh, a source of controversy because it is, I guess, widening the penumbra of those rights to uh, classes of people and to issues that. Uh, at the founding uh, weren't necessarily in people's minds, but also would not necessarily have been protected. Is that, a, is that a useful way to think about that? Absolutely. There's a politics to the statement that the word privacy does not appear in the Constitution. It's typically asserted by those who want to question whether or not the uses put to the right to privacy, when it did become explicit in constitutional jurisprudence in the Supreme Court, uh, whether that that movement is, is legitimate. As you say, in the 1960s, we got um, birth control and abortion rights based on the idea of a right to privacy. We also, by the way, got uh, the Fourth Amendment expectation of privacy doctrine in the 1960s at around the same time. Mm-hmm. And we got the, um, the, the First Amendment doctrine of associational privacy in the famous case NAACP versus Alabama. Uh, so, so we began to see the Supreme Court explicitly use the word and the concept of privacy in the 1950s and 60s. And progressives were happy about that. Uh, conservatives who didn't like racial um, integration, they didn't like uh, uh, abortion, they didn't like birth control, they didn't like interracial marriage. We got interracial marriage also under privacy rubrics in the 1960s. All those progressive movements were resisted by by using the argument that privacy either is not a constitutional value at all or 
it's a value, but it has to be narrowly construed because it's not an enumerated right. Mm. Uh, Professor Shobh, I want to bring you into the conversation here and focus on a part of your research uh, that looks more at the human factors around privacy. Talk about what those factors are and help us explain and sort of understand, I guess, uh, the essence uh, of, of your work around that. Sure. Um, so when we, when we talk, talk about human factors, it means how does the human come into play in making decisions about privacy, how people behave, and um, why do people sometimes tend to make decisions or use technology in ways that uh, maybe goes against their, their privacy interests or their privacy expectations. And one of the challenges that we see a lot when we, um, when we conduct our research studies is that uh, data is business. And um, anything you do today is imbued with data and that uh, data has value to companies, to service providers. And um, so whatever you do on the internet, on your phone, um, in your car, if you have a modern car, um, often has a secondary value and um, data gets sold um, or, or used in ways that you might not anticipate. And um, that makes it very difficult to uphold this expectation of privacy because once you share data with someone else, with another party, is it still, uh, do you still, is it still private to you, right? And um, we've looked for, at this, for example, in the context of smart speakers, your Alexas, your Google Homes, um, and whatnot. And what we find there is that people who, who buy these devices, it's not that they don't think about or care about privacy, but they see it as, um, well, some of them see it as um, these companies might be looking out for me, right? I, I don't need to worry too much about what they do with my data. There are legal barriers of what they can do with the data. They're going to protect that data. But that's maybe a, a bit of a risky assumption if the business model of these companies is ultimately to sell things to you, for example, by targeting advertising to you or by getting you to buy things off their, their platform, their stores. Um, the other thing we're seeing is that people say like, well, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, these companies have so much information about me already. Um, what difference does it make if they now also have a microphone in my house and can, can <laughs> listen to me around the clock? So we see this, this creeping erosion of what expectations of privacy are. Uh, when we talk about tech and uh, data and things like social media, uh, I, I think that that is the the dynamic, I guess, that is driving uh, the change in the way that we see privacy and forcing us to think about privacy uh, in in different ways. Uh, Professor Schaub, I, I wonder if you can talk about how dramatic. Uh, that actually is, and how unusual, I guess, that, that actually is. I mean, are we seeing uh, the, the notions of privacy in the law uh, and as, it, as they relate to the Constitution actually change uh, as technology sort of pushes us into realms that, uh, that we didn't really have before? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely straining um, the, the legal protections that we have uh, when it comes to privacy, particularly in the, in the United States. Um, what, what we see is that the, when we look at privacy law, there's kind of like a focus around notice and choice. Um, and the idea is that if you give people enough information to make an informed decision um, about which companies, which entities to, uh, entities to entrust with their data, um, then they can make that decision and 
um, move on and they, they have their autonomy, their individual autonomy um, to decide um, their private, what, what is private to them and what isn't private to them. But that kind of clashes with the reality of these rights in practice, right? Um, I don't know when the was, last time uh, was you read a privacy policy, Stephen, <laughs> but most people I ask uh, usually don't read privacy policies. And um, based on our research, they probably shouldn't. Um, we conducted a study about two, three years ago where we looked at how the general data protection regulation, um, a new privacy law in Europe, changed the privacy landscape. And one thing we looked at is um, how long privacy policies have become. And we found that the average privacy policy was over 3,000 words long. Now, there's a great paper by Alicia McDonald and Laurie Craner um, from 2008 that estimates that it would take people 244 hours to read all the privacy policies of all the websites they interact with. Mm. And that was in 2008, right? That's before smartphones, before app stores, uh, before Alexas. And um, so just to expect people to actually read all these privacy policies is, um, is unreasonable and doesn't really make sense. Mm. Um, and then even if people read privacy notices, um, we found in a different study that you can very easily manipulate people in giving consent um, to practices with simple things such as where on the screen do you show um, a cookie consent notice, for example? Do you highlight the button, the agree button over the decline button? And when we see that, just these simple manipulations have significant effects on how many people not just interact with these notices, click on them, but actually click the agree button. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Allen, I want to go back to something that you referenced uh, earlier in the conversation that you were talking about, uh, the 1959 uh, Supreme Court case NAACP versus Bennett. But I, I sort of want to expand on that idea uh, and talk about the role played by African-Americans in the collective movement towards securing privacy rights, especially as it relates to problems of surveillance search and seizure. Uh, it's not just that one case. Uh, it's that the March for Civil Rights uh, also uh, ushered in uh, different notions of how pr privacy is uh, protected by the Constitution. Yeah, and let me, before I say that, just underscore a point that was suggested by the previous um, comments, which is that the Constitution, of course, does not really apply to big tech platforms like Google and Apple and mm -hmm. Amazon and uh, Airbnb and Uber and Facebook. These are uh, private companies that are not bound by the Constitution in any direct sense whatsoever. So the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply, for example, uh, the First Amendment doesn't apply. So it's doubly difficult for ordinary people to understand uh, the absence of boundaries, because I think a lot of people do assume that, of course, the Constitution must protect our informational privacy, it must protect our data privacy, but the reality is that it doesn't. And in addition to that, the federal statutes and the state statutes that we have setting aside California for a second, the states and federal statutes we have really don't do much at all to uh, protect the uh, Internet of Things, uh, to protect our, our, our engagement with, um, with surveillance by private uh, companies. So that's, that's I want to just put that out there because mm -hmm. it's very important to understand yeah. that the constitutional law doesn't really um, include directly protections for um, data in the hands of private companies. But I, I love the NAACP versus Alabama case. This is a case where 
Um, the state of Alabama was trying to get rid of the NAACP, and they, their strategy was to kick the NAACP out of Alabama by saying, you didn't obey the corporation law. Corporation law says a corporation has to uh, file with the state within so many days after they come into the state. And Alabama hadn't done that because they thought, well, we're a public interest nonprofit. We're not a corporation. But in any event, they got into this big battle with the NAACP and, and Alabama got a big battle. And um, eventually the, uh, the, the NAACP went to the Supreme Court to argue that they shouldn't have to turn over their membership list to the state of Alabama because guess what Alabama might have done with that list? <laughs> there was so much... Um, violence and uh, and loss of employment around being part of the civil rights movement, that it would have been fatal for many people, blacks and whites alike, who were, who were civil rights advocates, to have their names handed over to Alabama. Supreme Court said there's a right of private association. Associational privacy is a constitutional value protected by the First Amendment. After that case, Many other uh, examples uh, were found in, 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 our, in our society where courts could also say, because of this right of associational privacy established by those African-American advocates in, in NAACP versus Alabama, we all have a right to keep our, 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 our associations private. So it's a very important uh, legal precedent. And I want, want to note that, that one of the brilliant things about that case is that it kind of flipped America's relationship with race and privacy. Hmm. So back in the in the in the days of slavery in the, in the early 19th century, um, the idea of privacy was used in very bad ways. It did bad things. So, for example, in a, in a North Carolina case called State versus Man, uh, a, a man who was um, had, had uh, rented out an enslaved woman named Lydia. Uh, shot her when she tried to escape after he was trying to beat her for some minor offense. And it was an outrageous shooting. And so even the white community said, this guy needs to be prosecuted for assault and battery. But the Supreme Court of North Carolina said, no, no uh, white owner or renter of an enslaved person can be criminally prosecuted for a wounding, for shooting, because that would undermine slavery, <laughs> give slaves rights against, against enslavement. Mm -hmm. so, so believe it or not, the idea of the right to privacy was used to help um, not just segregation, but slavery. And then it was used again 20, 30 years later in the same state of North Carolina to say that a man couldn't be prosecuted for beating his wife, that, that a man was allowed to beat his wife and she had no, no criminal claim against him because the privacy of marriage and family. <laughs> so, so privacy had this sort of, I would almost say an evil or, 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 or unfortunate, unequal non-egalitarian, subordinating sort of role in the 19th century. But then in the 20th century, um, uh, uh, wise and insightful African-American advocates and their allies were able to use the right to privacy idea to benefit integration, to benefit uh, the movement towards civil rights. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about privacy and the U.S. Constitution. We're going to keep Professor Anita Allen and Professor Florian Schaub. Uh, we're going to want to hear from you as well, though. Give us a call and tell us what questions and concerns you have about your right to privacy. Do you feel like maybe you're surrendering some of your privacy rights by having things like smart speakers or smartphones in your life? Do you trust big tech to keep safe and secure the private conversations you have? Also, give us a sense of what you think of the wider 
rights to privacy, uh, government surveillance, uh, government uh, intervention in people's lives. Are we at a point where privacy is protected the way it should be in the United States? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are continuing our WDET Summer Book Club discussions today with a look at the U.S. Constitution and how it relates to privacy, how it protects our privacy, both in the physical world and in the tech world, which is something uh, that in recent years has become more of uh, a flashpoint than it has in the past. Uh, we want to hear from you about how you're feeling about the protections of your privacy. Do you feel uh, like things like smart speakers and smartphones uh, are intruding on our privacy uh, as Americans because of the way that we use them? Uh, also, what do you think about things like government surveillance, uh, search and seizure uh, the other ways that uh, government is supposed to stay out of our private lives. Are we where we should be, uh, or is there a lot more work to do? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We've got two great experts here with us to help us think through Privacy and the U.S. Constitution. Anita Allen is the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Law's Henry R. Silverman Professor of Law and a professor of philosophy. She is internationally renowned as an expert on philosophical dimensions of privacy and data protection law, ethics, bioethics, legal philosophy, women's rights, and diversity in higher education. Uh, also with us is Florian Schaub, who is uh, Assistant Professor of Information at the University of Michigan School of Information. His research focuses on empowering users to effectively manage their privacy in complex socio-technological systems. Uh, let's start today with uh, Fergus in Wyandotte. Fergus, welcome to Hi. the show. Hi, Stephen. Yeah, go ahead. And thanks again for probably the best show on NPR, I think. Oh, thank you. Nationwide. But uh, <laughs> I just wanted to ask your guests about the constitutionality of the government uh, selling personal data that you're compelled to provide. Um, for example, um, I think it's fairly well known that driver's license information is sold to third parties by most DMVs, and I don't think you really have any choice in that. And something similar with uh, the recent uh, child tax credits with the IRS. In order to go online, for example, to update your information, you have to uh, pass a facial recognition test from a third-party uh, ID, me, I think, uh, company, which 
presumably the IRS has given all your personal data and facial information to them in order to verify your information. Hmm. Fergus, that is a really great question and a subject that I think is on a lot of people's minds uh, these days. Uh, Professor Allen, I'll give you first crack at uh, answering Fergus. It, it is a great question, and I think that there could be constitutional uh, issues raised by the government um, selling or giving away personal data that they collect from people who have no choice about giving it up for, you know, driver's license, taxes, and so forth. There are some federal statutes, though, that put a limitation on what the government can do with uh, information they collect for tax purposes or for driver's license purposes. There are actually specific statutes that govern that. So some of the things we might worry about wouldn't be protected by the Constitution directly, but there would be these federal statutes, important statutory regimes, which would protect our privacy. You know, we have over 21 different federal privacy statutes covering health, finance, driver's records, uh, education records, genetic data, and on and on and on, financial data. So some of our privacy interests are protected by statutes, even though they're not protected directly by the Constitution. That's a real um, safeguard for us in this context. Mm. Uh, Professor Schaub, um, I, I wonder uh, about that line between the fears we have about private companies and their use of our data, and I guess government, which because of the same technological advances, I think uh, is, is able to infringe on our privacy more than, than they have in the past. Yeah, that's a good question. I think those two, two topics, like the line really blurs, right? Um, um, as the, the caller said, governments might be selling data or sharing data with um, third parties for various reasons. Um, in the case of the, the facial recognition provider, I assume there's a contractual agreement in place that would protect the data. So just because the third party is involved in a governmental process doesn't necessarily mean they can do with your data whatever they want. But there's, of course, a risk whether these uh, contractors actually keep the data sufficiently secure to prevent data breaches. Mm. And then there's this other aspect that um, data companies have and collect about you could potentially be um, they could potentially be compelled to give it up to law enforcement or immigration enforcement um, under certain conditions. Um, in, in our research, we, we, for example, we looked at undocumented immigrants and how they, they think about risks when it comes to using technology. And we found that they often have very sophisticated uh, risk avoidance strategies in their daily lives. People might, not, uh, might choose not to drive cars because they can't get a legal driver's license um, and other things. But then uh, when it comes to using technology, it's often really hard to anticipate the risks and some people also want to um, leverage the convenience. And in doing so, sometimes forget that when they um, chat or exchange messages with their family back home or their friends that um, the platform they're using, Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, whatever it is, um, is also party to the conversation and keeps a record of that conversation. Mm. Hmm. Again, uh, Fergus, thanks so much for the call and the really uh, provocative question. Uh, let's go to Anthony in southwest Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that uh, member Edward Snowden leaked a big uh, program by our own NSA and several other governmental agencies across the globe, a big uh, surveillance program they had in 2013. And now he's in Russia and can't come back to the U.S. Don't you think Edward Snowden deserves to be pardoned? Hmm. 
Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I know there are a lot of people uh, who do believe uh, Snowden should be pardoned. It's, this is kind of the flip side, I think, of the personal privacy uh, uh, question uh, in the U.S. Constitution. But uh, Professor Allen, uh, answer Anthony's question here. Uh, I'm gonna, gonna not answer this question, you know, in a way, because I, I think that the real question here is how transparent and accountable should the federal government be for its information practices? You know, if government is collecting um, uh, phone records, if they're listening in on our phone calls, if they're if they're accessing data in other ways, uh, we should have an idea about that. We should know about that, so our expectations can and our behavior can be appropriately um, calibrated. I think what was so shocking about the Edward Snowden um, revelations is the extent to which the government was uh, accessing our telecommunications. Uh, and that was a terrible thing. I, you know, I, I, whether you should be pardoned or not depends upon how one views uh, uh, the importance of obeying laws and lines of authority, even when one doesn't agree with them, right? So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, good answer. Uh, Professor Schaub, I wonder if uh, if you have reactions to, to Anthony's question. Oh, I, I think uh, Professor Allen's uh, response was, was great. Yeah. I support <laughs> right. what she said. It's a little bit of a third rail, right? <laughs> okay, let's go to uh, Dan in Detroit. Dan, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi, Dan. Uh, today, um, so I have a question, um, for example, in New York, you now have to scan a QR code everywhere you go. Um, and also uh, at universities, this is the policy. And it seems like a public-private partnership, like in New York, they have the Excelsior Pass, which is made by the Digital Health Pass. Yeah, uh, uh Dan, your your phone is is breaking up just a bit, but I but I'm pretty sure I get the gist of uh, of your comment and your question. It's about uh, these vaccine passports that are being used in cities like New York. I I don't know how many of our listeners have visited New York uh, since the pandemic began, but you can't really go um, to to just about anything uh, in New York right now without showing. Um, that that you've been vaccinated, and there's uh, there's uh, an online uh, system that that keeps track of people who say they're vaccinated, and and that is medical information. So you know, I think it does certainly implicate uh, privacy rights. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Schaub, I wonder if you can talk about the not just the legality of. What they're doing, obviously, uh, it, it is it is legal. It's been declared legal, but is it an, an unnecessary or um, or too aggressive infringement on on our privacy rights? So the, the question that, that interests me in this is um, how is the data secured and what records are actually kept? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a risk with these types of infrastructures that you end up creating pretty detailed profiles of where people go and how they spend their day, and uh, that information can be used in all kinds of contexts. It can be of interest to law enforcement, it can be of interest to companies. Um, so you, you have a ready market for for that type of information. At the same time, right, like the, the, the aspect that the caller is worried about this and the, the privacy aspect around this also shows that, that it makes this tracking that's going on anyway all the time way more uh, visible, right? Like if you have to actually scan a QR code, 
everywhere you go, now you're realizing that you're kind of checking in to a business. But that tracking happens even if you don't scan a barcode, right? Like you, we, we all carry a perfect tracking device, a device in our pockets with our smartphones. And every time you walk down the street, unless you really lock down your phone settings, you're going to be connecting to Wi-Fi access points around you. You're going to be um, sending out Bluetooth beacons um, to that can be captured by um, devices that are set up to basically track who's in a store, for example, and which aisle you are in a store. So this tracking is happening anyway. In addition to the tracking that happens on your phone with the apps that you have installed that might be um, accessing your location in frequent intervals. We did one study a couple of years ago, and we found that apps like Groupon, for example, um, access your location on average every five minutes. And so um, we, we we all kind of uh, carry these tracking advice, uh, devices, but what what makes it challenging for people is that often the tracking is invisible, and then also the harms from that are invisible. Right? You don't really know who is collecting that information, what is done with that information, and what is inferred from that information, and how that eventually might come back to you in some way. Right? Like you might not know uh, whether you didn't get that job interview because um, some app location service mm-hmm. placed you in a risky establishment at some time in your past. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, Professor Allen, I think that there is uh, a, a racial component to these questions as well, and, and it's a historical one. Uh, you know, African-Americans, of course, you know, we have been uh, uh, subject to um, – uh, medical uh, abuse in in the past, but but also um, information about our medical histories is is I think a tender a tender spot in our in our minds, and and I, I wonder if you can talk about uh, that history uh, and how it relates to things like uh, the things that they're doing in in New York. Yeah, well, African Americans and certain other um, religious minority groups, for example are over-surveilled, watched, controlled, subordinated through watching and surveillance. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the emergency situation that we're in with the pandemic, which requires us to make some privacy sacrifices, hopefully you know, for a short period of time, uh, a period of, of maybe a couple of years and not decades, but, but we're making some sacrifices right now for a greater good, which is public health. But people are are reacting to these requirements through historical memory of subordination, uh, social surveillance, uh, and even even um, segregation and slavery and discrimination. And so, understandably, given the history in which uh, there was a, um, a concerted effort to um, marginalize, um, uh, cabin, and control certain groups. Those groups right now are feeling like this is just more of the same old thing, only even worse. Right. <laughs> so uh, I think that's that's the, the head head we're in right now. As far as medical matters go, uh, a lot of African Americans and their allies remember the history of the um, Tuskegee experiments, where African American men were um, were not treated for treatable syphilis for years, so the government could study them. They remember the story of Henrietta Locks, the woman in Baltimore who's um, whose um, uh, cancer cells were, were saved without her knowledge or permission and, and turned into a very valuable cell line, which the family didn't benefit from for, for, for decades. Um, those kind of stories make us suspicious of 
what we're being asked to do by way of vaccination and uh, identification and um, surveillance. Yet, I think it's important that everybody separate in their minds that history from what's happening now where um, we really are not being asked to do these things just so that we can be oppressed and subordinated, but rather it's part of a larger public health uh, effort globally to get rid of a very, very dangerous disorder. But, but understandably, uh, people are concerned about whether or not um, this is just another example of over-surveillance, the weaponization of technology, uh, the panopticon society, and, and writ large. And we have to be mindful of that and understand that. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about privacy. I want to thank Professor Florian Schaub, Assistant Professor of Information at the University of Michigan School of Information, uh, for joining us. Professor Schaub, it was really great to have you here as part of the conversation. Thank you. Uh, We are also going to keep Professor Anita Allen, and we're going to add another voice to this conversation when we come back. Tawana Petty is a non-resident fellow at the Digital Civil Society Lab and a lifelong Detroiter, National Organizing Director at Data for Black Lives. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. We are continuing our WDET Summer Book Club discussion about the U.S. Constitution, the ways it influences uh, our lives today, also the ways in which it shapes and uh, influences notions of equality and inequality. Today, we're talking about privacy as it uh, is protected by the Constitution. Uh, we've got with us Anita Allen. He's, she is the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Laws, Henry R. Silverman, Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy. And I want to welcome another voice uh, to the conversation. Tawana Petty is a non-resident fellow at the Digital Civil Society Lab, a lifelong Detroiter, and National Organizing Director at Data for Black Lives, who has done a lot of work to bring awareness to the privacy and surveillance implications of the Project Greenlight program here in Detroit. Uh, Tawana Petty, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's start here. How do you think about the Constitution in terms of the work that you do around data and privacy here in Detroit? Thank you. Um, And I I agree with the professor. we have a right to unreasonable search and seizure under the U.S. Constitution. And with pro- programs like Project Greenlight, where uh, there are over 2,000 surveillance cameras connected to over 700 businesses, including medical facilities, grocery stores, laundromats, gas stations, low-income housing, uh, there really isn't that protection because you are living under a, a perpetual lineup and with the companion face recognition, you're hoping you won't be uh, misidentified and picked up for something you didn't do. Mm. And so, you know, it, it really is. It feels like every day you're sitting there waiting and hoping that 
that technology doesn't pick you out of that virtual lineup. And and uh, Tawana, I, I'm not sure that most people are aware anymore of how often they are uh, surveilled. I mean, these are private businesses, by the way, that participate in in Project Greenlight, and so they can be anywhere. It's not just that the government could put a camera on a on a street corner. Uh, it's, a, right. it's a gas station or, or, or a party store, a convenience store. Uh, it's, it's all kinds of, of places. Um, I, what's your sense of Detroiters' awareness even of how pervasive this surveillance is? Unfortunately, Detroiters have been forced to pick between the uh, conflation. Pick, you know, there's this conflation between surveillance and safety. Mm-hmm. And so Detroiters want to feel safe. However, they've been inundated with the narrative that surveillance is going to deliver that safety. And so although a lot of community members are aware of how pervasive surveillance is, they're still grasping to the hope that there is going to deliver safety. The quality of life in Detroit has eroded. So therefore we have quality of life crimes. And unfortunately, we don't have the investment in those quality of life resources. We have the reaction from city government and law enforcement to ramp up mass surveillance in response to the outcry from the community. You know, Detroiters have shot spotter. We have surveillance traffic cameras. We have surveillance drones. We have surveillance helicopters. We have cell phone tracking. Uh, thankfully, a Michigan proposal passed that is going to uh, require law enforcement to use a, a warrant before hacking into our cell phones. But for years, they didn't have to do that. Um, and so, you know, there's this there's this hope that at some point, if we just invest millions and millions of more dollars into this technology, that at some point we'll become safe. And that's just not the reality. There's been numerous studies to indicate that this isn't going to deliver safety for residents. And I'll finally say, with regard to the pandemic, uh, Detroit police issued over 6,000 tickets mm-hmm. to Detroiters, leveraging Project Greenlight as one of the mechanisms for issuing those tickets at a time when people all over the world were defying stay-at-home orders. And so um, you, there, there is this this known reality that black and brown and poor white communities are going to be hyper surveilled. We're going to suffer the brunt of this type of mass surveillance. And it it comes with a long history of that. Um, And finally, I'll say Dr. Simone Brown in her Dark Matters book talks about the 18th century lantern laws, Mm -hmm. where if you were a black or a brown person, mulatto person is what they were calling um, back in the day. um, And you didn't have a lit candle lantern in front of your face when you weren't in the presence of a white person, you could be subject to uh, various crimes, including, you know, murder. And so when I look at these flashing green lights that never go off, that are all around the city in all of these various environments, it makes me think of that 18th century lantern law because our city is being gentrified. So we have to make the city feel safe for the new people who are moving into the city, but not so much for the people who have been here. Mm. Uh, uh, Professor Allen, before we get back to listeners, I'd love to have you talk a little about what uh, Tawana Petty is pointing out. This idea of mass surveillance in a city uh, like Detroit, which is inspired by government's uh, uh, imperative to, to try to increase safety, but then is aided by private businesses uh, who place these cameras 
uh, outside their establishments. And it, it creates an environment where there literally is no privacy because you can't go anywhere that you're not on camera. Why is that not a breach of the protections uh, that we ought to have, uh, the constitutional protections that we ought to have of our privacy? Yeah, so the, the courts have pretty universally found or held that there's no right to privacy in a public place. So if you're walking down the street or walking into a store or to a place of public accommodations, a sports arena, for example, you have no expectation of privacy. I happen to disagree with that. And there are other experts, uh, colleagues of mine, who also disagree, who believe that there are privacy interests even when we go about in public places. And there has to be some, some regard for the uses of public spaces for private um, purposes. So that's one, one important factor, mm -hmm. that there's very little legal protection for us when we're in a public place. Now, um, I, I love the point about Simone Brown's book, which does uh, provide a very, very interesting history of the surveillance, the over-surveillance, the hyper-surveillance of people of color. It's a very important um, scholarly contribution. But I think that one of the points to be made here is that instead of investing in the social determinants of criminal activity and on how we define crime, we're instead investing uh, millions of dollars, ultimately billions of dollars, in technologies that we think are representing to people as the saviors. And, I, and they're not going to be the perfect solution. It's not going to be the case that the more technology we have, the more crime we're going to get rid of. We're going to simply, I think, exacerbate underlying problems without getting to the, the root of those problems. And, and another problem with, with what we're, the approach we're taking is that it's, um, it, it's creating uh, a, a form of life, a quality of life for people who live in cities mm -hmm. that is really, really, really far below the quality of life that I think our grandparents expected we would have by the year 2021. Not a life of greater freedom and greater equality, but a life of, of heightened surveillance a heightened fear of surveillance and uh, and heightened criminalization. Hmm. So uh, you know it, it's it's a bad direction that I think uh, Detroit and other cities are going in when they're investing so much in technology of surveillance and so much less in the social determinants of crime, such as education, housing, affordable housing, good health care, and uh, the limitations on the use of the carceral state as a form of uh, subordination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, what's on your mind? Stephen, I just want to uh, thank both of your, your, your panelists for their recent comments. We have a crisis of opportunity, and our answer is to lock people up because of it. Um, I was calling in to say I think there's such a generational divide in these issues around uh, digital privacy. I mean, my kids have a bazillion apps on their phones. They have their phones on in an app constantly. Um, and when I say to them, we don't need all of this, you know, speak to you technology that responds and we don't need a bunch of stuff in the house, you know, smart TVs and other things that can look back at us. They kind of think I'm crazy. But I, I just feel like this next generation, they're the ones, it is going to be so normalized for them that their lives are, are spied on. It, it, I'm just, I fear for the next generation. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, uh, what about that generational 
aspect, uh, Professor Allen. Uh, this this new generation that uh, that you know is is digitally native, right? Uh, they're, they're born into a world where all of these things are possible. Are their expectations lower than say? Uh, mine might be uh, about what should be private. Big tech products have changed the way we live. So yes, young people cannot imagine not sharing on Instagram. They can't imagine being left out of Facebook and so forth. But um, but on the other hand, some of these young people are going to pay the biggest prices of all. So for example, the young man in uh, New Jersey, who Najir Parks, who was arrested and put in jail for, for several days because facial recognition matched him with uh, a suspect in a, in, a, in, a, in a crime involving, I think it was stealing candy out of, a, out of a hotel. Someone stole candy out of a hotel and that person escaped in a car and crashed into a police car. And so uh, facial recognition matched this innocent man with the perpetrator of the crime. Mm-hmm. The innocent man didn't even own a car. He'd never been to Woodbridge, New Jersey, but he spent days in jail. They didn't even bother to do fingerprinting to, to clear him from, from um, responsibility for the crime. This is, these are young black men. These are not people my age. These are younger people. I think younger people are gonna discover more and more the disadvantages of the, of the use of some of these technologies. So I think as, as they experience hardship and, and a loss of quality of life, they too, like some of the older people, will, will begin to say, let me moderate my use of technology. And I I have an iPad, an iPhone, an iMac, <laughs> um, you, know, you name it, I've got it. But I, I do try to limit my and moderate my use of those technologies because I do realize that when I turn them on, I'm giving uh, the world a blueprint of my life. So uh, we need to educate our young people about, about what it means to use technology. Uh, and it was said earlier by Professor um, uh, um, Shroud that we can't, um, we can't read all those policies, privacy policies. It's true. But we need to teach uh, young people about the kinds of things that appear typically in privacy policies, which is to say, they are expected to not opt into sharing, but opt out of sharing. And many of them don't, don't know that they have that right to opt out of, of data sharing. But, but, but there's, a, there's an ethical responsibility, I believe, on the part of parents and young people to do better by technology, use it more wisely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Professor Anita Allen, it's really great to have you here for this conversation today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And also to Juana Petty. Uh, it was really great to have you here uh, to explain your work, exposing what's happening with surveillance on our streets here in Detroit. Thanks so much for joining us as well. Thanks. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how people are trying to navigate this confusing point in the pandemic and what experts are saying about how best to keep safe. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station.